Kia ora hello everybody and welcome to Epic Aotearoa Create a Better Future podcast where every week we share uplifting messages told by New Zealanders in their own words. Our mission is to share the learnings from those lived experiences, inspire our listeners to take positive action and go out there and create a better future. Proudly brought to you by co-founders Joe Hortai, former soldier in the Special Air Service, family man and aspiring entrepreneur, and Brian Osman, a knowledge engineer, family man, entrepreneur and all-round good dude. Thank you for connecting with us today. Now let's get started and create a better future. Let's go. Hello everybody and welcome back to this epic Aotearoa Create a Better Future podcast and in specifically this series, In the Service of Others, Who Dares Wins? Both Brian and I, co-founders of Epic Aotearoa, are privileged to have a very special guest and a dear friend uh, to myself in particular here on this podcast. Also again from the Australian Special Air Service Regiment, former serving member of 30 years experience, former team commander and team specialist. It's deployed on numerous operational deployments around the world during what I know to be an exemplary service. He is held in the highest regard by his peers and by all those who know him for his integrity, his knowledge, his expertise, his skills, humility, and his sense of humour. Uh, he's gone on to be an author of the book Eleven Bats. He's also a registered psychologist and the director of human performance for Stoughton. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll tell all the one and only Harry Moffat. <laughs> Welcome, brother. Too kind, mate. You make me sound like a real wanker. <laughs> uh, but, mate, it's great to see you again and, and great to be in touch, Brian. So thanks for having us on and, and well done on launching the uh, the podcast. It's fantastic. Oh, cheers, no mate. Real privilege, real honour for both Brian and I to have you. Um, Brian actually shared a story as a little while back. Maybe you share it, Brian, about the airport and the, the bookstore that you went to. Oh, yeah. So... um. Sorry, Moff, but um, I read your book, but I didn't buy it. And the, what happened was I went up to the air, I was in the airport and I was waiting. And I thought, hey, because, yeah, I like looking at the, reading the, what, what books are now. And I saw this book, your book, The Eleven Bats. And I grew up with cricket and, and, and my family is a, a military family. But, you know, I never was in that space. But so I got to hear these stories and I was reading it and I think I, I, I got right up to the moment where you had to get to the gate, but I was still reading in grossness. I think I missed the call, but so there was a mad dash to the gate. I forget which airport, but uh, yeah, enjoyed it. I'm happy to enjoyed hear what it. I read. Yeah. I'm just glad it's not a complete dud, Brian. You have many sleepless nights writing it because who dares comes out and, and writes a book about the SAS, but um no, it's it, it's, uh, it, it's it's nice to hear that kind of feedback. That kind of warms up. Yeah, awesome. Uh, no, no worries. It was it was it was it was good, especially when I was going, oh, this bad. Oh. And then I think you started with the grey nickels, a junior or something. I think you referred to, and then, then and then I could chill it in my head. So we'll probably have questions more about the cricket and the bats later on. But yeah, so yeah, sure. yeah awesome, awesome book. Thanks, mate. Cheers, Brian. Thanks for that. And. Um, for Asimov, we're going to dive straight into to a few things, just probably more from an operational perspective, because really keen, I've, I've been listening to some of the other stuff that you've done on, on other podcasts and your conversations and stuff that you've had on television, media, Sky News, and that sort of stuff around the book and that sort of thing. So yeah, we'd definitely love, love to touch on some of that. But I guess what 
the intent is to try to give you some context and background about what we're doing and the intent of this podcast is in the service of others, uh, who dares wins, that there's a whole bunch of experiences and skills and expertise that you've garnered and, and been able to obtain over the years that I've felt and that we've felt, Brian and I have felt, are applicable, relevant and helpful in many ways to all walks of life, much like what you do with Stoughton. It's, it's not just, it's, it's applicable and helpful to anybody, regardless of where they come from. And it's also something that's quite interesting, we've found. People have a lot of questions, people have a curiosity around it, although there's, although there's a lot, there's a much broader lens that's now uh, has access, it appears, to the units, and there's been a whole bunch of documentaries and information that is available out there that wasn't available when you and I went through selection and all no, that sort of stuff. No, there's nothing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so from that perspective, there's probably those insights, but this here provides probably what we hope to be a more deeper and meaningful impact and, and viewpoint of things, like right at the coalface from the operators like yourselves that have been there on the ground, looked into the eyes of these people and different cultures and different situations and had to make decisions in very dynamic, fast-paced environments and sometimes very, you know, obviously very stressful in that as well. So what we've been finding is that a lot of people have really resonated with the messages. They've really resonated with the authenticity, the rawness and the honesty of individuals like yourselves that would give us of your time to share some of your amazing experiences. And it's not all war stories and amazing. Some mm. of it is hardship as well and difficulty and the need to try to overcome that through resilience and the things that you've learned. But that's just to try to paint a bit of a backdrop for you around what our intention is. And these experiences that get shared, much like when we're raising our families and our children, there's usually a story behind the name that we'll give to our child. There's a story behind where we come from and why we named something X, Y, Z or whatever it is. And these things, this platform or this medium we've found has been really helpful. Um, and so before I forget, one last thing that I want to mention to you before I jump into the first question is seeing what you've done and having a bit of a look and research has really inspired me to want to go down that path personally, down the psychology route. So yeah, I, um, because of you, um, often I wanted to wait for this <laughs> Thanks, uh, moment to share that. It's really been inspiring, mate, and I just want to thank you personally. And, uh, yeah, I, I can't wait. I don't know how long it's going to take me to get through that, but I, what I do know is that my mindset that I have with regards to who dares wins, I'll get it done. It's just going to take me some time. Yeah, so when it's you. the journey, uh, embrace the, the journey, Joe. But knowing you as I do, um, I think psychology studies, wherever that takes, will be a great, great, uh, a great fit for you. So, uh, yeah, onwards, always. Thank you, brother. Appreciate yeah. it. Well, I'm going to jump in with the first question before Brian. Um, and I guess <laughs> maybe, a, maybe an easier one to start off with. Oh, I don't know if it's easy, but memorable from an operational perspective what's been one of the most memorable missions or operations that you've been on whether that's um, maybe from a positive perspective or good and, and bad or a combination of all what's something that you know stands out to you and, and are you would you be okay and just sort of speaking to some of the details some of the finer details of that stuff yeah look I, there's two things that spring to mind immediately I think um, you know Probably the most challenging, and it won't, it'll surprise people, the most challenging uh, deployment I went on was with, was with Nick Cobble. We talked about him a bit earlier. Mm. Timor, I think as a, as a team commander, 
And it, you know, it was one of the first, it was probably the first or second, probably the second trip I'd been away. You know, you go away with this mindset that it's you know, gunslinging. Uh, we were doing some close protection work as well. So it's, you know, quite martial in its intent. But I wasn't really prepared for the humanitarian crisis, the, the humanity mm-hmm. of it. And I think uh, it's one of the things I remember people who went to uh, Rwanda and, and Somalia and places like that, that's something that challenged them. I always worried, I'm not worried, I was, I, I've always reflected that we probably don't do enough of that awareness training or what to do. And it's pretty... Um, there was a couple of times there where we were, you know, five guys, thousands of internally displaced people. And remember, Timor's high-anxiety uh, country after what it's been through last century. Um, so very, very challenging navigating not only, you know, the potential threat and, and being able to bring a, uh, you know, a, a kind of, as I said, a martial or military solution to that if required, but also, you know, being a diplomat, being a humanitarian aid giver, uh, you know, that, that, that was quite challenging. So um, I, I really reflect kindly on that trip. It was, uh, it was kind of a, a, a more of an adventure because it wasn't, you know, fighting per se uh, so, and, and the challenges. The, the other one, of course, is um, uh, probably the highlight I talk about is uh, parachuting ops in Afghanistan, night parachute ops, uh, just leading a team, uh, no one being hurt and acquitting the missions, uh, you know, in, in one case without firing a shot and getting it done. And I think that's that's the untold story sometimes in the narrative mm. of, the, of the regiment at the moment. Mm. Um, so they're, you know, they're two things I think I reflect on, I'm proud of, and uh, just great teams. Whenever I talk about teams, I, I kind of had that mental model in my, my mind. Awesome, man. Thanks for that. Well, I just had a, um, a question there, Moff. Um, when you're talking about um, Timor, I did. I read an article, um, and it was it was you. I think you were were you doing close protection with the rebel leader? I forget his name. Renato or something. Renato. Alfredo Renato. Renato. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and, and it, it was something that stood out for, interesting because he had one eye on you, and you had one eye on him. Your pistol was close; his pistol was close because you, you know, you're trying to to break that. And I think the is that when the bat came out, or was that the first time the bat was? Yeah, and 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 so we we were kind of up there just keeping an eye on him, Brian, really, because mm. he was yeah you know, he was a, a troublemaker, and he'd, uh, he, he'd uh, you know it was pretty serious yeah. guy. There's a lot of people trying to trying to kill him, or would have liked to have killed him. Um, so he had his own, um, you know, uh, uh, protection party. There's about a dozen um, followers that, that were up there looking after him up there in Malbisi. And, you know, we went up there, we're a small team. Um, we, we lived on the same plot of dirt and, uh, you know, we, there was a, a lot of suspicion and kind of looking sideways at each other when we first got up there. Uh, and uh, we were armed all the time, and and for the first couple of nights, I think it's fair to say we we all slept with our guns pretty close. <laughs> I had mine not, not literally under the pillow, but just beside the you know, or just under the edge of the pillow. So, not you know, I kind of dramatised that a little bit, but it was like that. He was he was racked with uh, paranoia, um, drinking a lot. Uh, you know, it was a real pity. I, I found him, you know, I found him to be a sophisticated, intelligent, charming man. Um, uh, with good hu- and good humoured, and and he wasn't the kind of rebel, you know, uh, guerrilla uh, leader that they'd made him out to be the bad guy. Uh, although he had, you know, he had, he had his reasons, as all people do, for for fighting for for justice. 
Um, but he was a rubbish cricketer. It was terrible. <laughs> he, couldn't, he couldn't hit it off the square, you know. So oh, he, shocking. So was yeah, he like have, um, did you get him out for a duck or something? Oh, I don't think he hit it once, Joe. He, uh, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't well, – it was an easy wicket, put it that way. We'd probably bowl – we'd bring Nick on because he was a you know, <laughs> But, um, no, look, those games were actually – and I talk about it a lot in the book, you know, they, they, they build a rapport and, and, and I think – Unlike other sports, I think cricket because it's you can play with five, two or ten people. Yeah. Everyone gets a bat, everyone gets a bowl, mm. everyone gets a turn, um, and it's just uh, it's good fun and, and and it's achievable by anyone, no matter whether you're Alfredo Renato never touched a cricket bat or not. And uh, we built a lot of rapport not only with him but with the the henchmen around him, and yeah. that allowed us that facilitate a lot of intelligence gathering mm. in terms of who was coming up and visiting in the. So uh, yeah, played a couple of. I, I, I'd like to think of that those games as kind of Hogan's heroes. <laughs> you know, yeah. Was, yeah. I see nothing. I, was, I see nothing. So I, I take all the all the smart ones. Then we're we're moved to the slips, so you can assess their uh, <laughs> their intelligence, so, and then all the, yeah. all the ones hand on the, on the, out, on the outfield hand eye yeah. coordination. <laughs> I, I used to hide in the slips, Brian. That was my position. It's hide there. Don't have to run anywhere. No, you don't have to run. No, yeah. No, none of this running business. No, shocking. That's awesome. Man, that's great. I, I loved how you touched on a couple of things there, Moff, and, and I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind speaking a little bit more to it about the humanity being a little bit unprepared for the humanity um, mm. side of it because that's an interesting point when you mentioned that um, one of the other guys that we had on the podcast spoke about, you know, most of the time – um, and his time serving in the New Zealand SAS, as an example, was a lot of time spent serving and helping others. And I know that that's been a large part of what you've done. And I just wonder, because you've you've gone and there's been times there where you've gone into areas where you've had where you spent a lot of time triaging people, men, women, children that have been exposed and been badly hurt and and all that sort of stuff, and sadly lost lives. But I wonder when you're speaking about the humanity, and you touched on maybe there wasn't as much awareness. Is there better awareness around it and preparation for the operators that it's not always going into get and or capture and or kill bad guys? It's it's there. There's there's other elements or more feathers to the cap, so to speak. Yeah, I think so, mate. I think there's a, a much better awareness. I think it's it's absolutely proper to say that um, you know special ops in the the makeup, particularly of the makeup of the Australian. Um, SAS, mm. um, we kind of that's the area we will play in. We play and we play in with we play in the area of building rapport with other nations, mm. um, going into areas where it's not a, a military solution or a military um, capability so much as it is uh, you know hearts and minds. And yeah. that's been something in the training since year dot. I, I grew up under Joe Van Droffler and. Mm-hmm. And Terry O'Farrell and, and and Gary Kingston and those guys who came through Hearts and Minds was a big part of the, the training. It was part of the the lexicon, you know. And it, wow. and it kind of dropped away through Afghanistan, where the focus just became all on Call of Duty stuff, you know, which yeah. uh, which is great, but it, it only tells a small snippet of the capability. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're better. There's a there's a mind model. There's a there's a model. I think it was uh, his name will come to me in a moment. A general from the nineties. Uh, who who had the three Krulak? Who uh, uh, Charles Krulak? I think his name was, and he had this uh, theory or model of the three block war, and you can look that up. It's a it's a nice little model. I like it a lot. Yeah. What it what it points to is uh, you 
uh, in a cityscape, you've got three blocks, yep. uh, city blocks, and on, on the first block, you uh, you might be fighting, war fighting, um, fighting your way through the, through the cityscape, uh, across the road to the next block, and you might find uh, a bunch of civilians who need humanitarian aid. So it's the second kind of block. And then the third block is you might have uh, a leadership engagement or local engagement, so kind of a diplomacy, and I talked about it. So I love how it wraps up this diplomacy, humanitarian aid or humanitarian um, operations, if you like, and then war fighting. And I think they're, I think they're now, there's no more conventional fronts. It hasn't been for a long time, very obvious thing to say. Mm-hmm. But more than ever, I think they're important. And I, I would encourage infantry soldiers also, or anyone who is frontline, um, uh, frontline soldiers who, who are going to fight in a modern context. These are important things. And, and training needs to be on cue around those, those aspects because it can change in an instant. Yeah. Um, you know, I know Nick and I. We, we I'll tell one out of ch- out of um, out of uh, school. We, yeah. we when we went to Timor, we were doing a couple of DA jobs, uh, and I should no, it wasn't with Nick, but we went back to Timor after that. But what, the team we did a we did a DA. We we knocked down a door to get a bad guy, and it was just a family. We got the wrong house. Right. So from one moment you're going from super high threat, guns up, expecting to, you know, ready to, to engage. Yep. Uh, and then there's a room full of screaming kids. Hmm. And so there's there's a different nuance. you still got to be maintain the threat awareness, but there's a different way of handling that to, yep. uh, to you know, for the obvious to say. But when you're under stress, fatigue, everything's coming at you, to pick pick through that's quite complex. And I think uh, you don't want that to be the first time, you know, your first time to be the first time. Yeah, 100%. Man, and that's I'm so glad that you spoke about that. Is that something that the unit is is spending a lot more time in from the training aspect, which you touched on, that training, the training for that needs to be there? Is that something that's been spent a bit more time on these days or prior to you leaving? Because you left in 2015, was it? Or Yeah, 2016. So 2016. we come across here. Yeah. Uh, no, no, definitely spends more time on that, on, on a more, I suppose, sophisticated approach. Gotcha. But, but I wouldn't mm-hmm. say that it's uh, uh, raised that capability or has a, has a new focus. Right. It used to be the focus. You know, we, we, we did, you, you remember, Joe, those, the people that go off to do PAFA training, for example, mm. uh, are well-trained in, in dealing with local populations yeah. and, and, and uh, disease in the common population, not just trauma, etc. So it's always been our DNA. But as I said, we kind of lost it a little bit, I think, in Afghanistan, uh, just with the focus on the, on the direct action. Mm. Uh, and when it, when it leaves the collective consciousness in that way, uh, it's it's it, you've then got to be deliberate about getting it back, right. and I think uh, it's fair to say the units that you know more focused on that now, and and awesome. yeah, we're, the unit's busier than ever from my understanding. It's and and it's re-engaging with the region now, which we dropped the ball on, you know, into Southeast Asia and the Pacific, etc. So that that'll be a huge part of it, you know, the hearts mm-hmm. and minds. Awesome. I th- I find it actually quite fascinating because I can imagine again you'd be a highly stressed environment. Yeah, you know, your situational awareness is just through the roof. You, you, you got, as you said, guns up, ready to engage. You go through the door, kids are there, and it's like, how do you just like boom, de-escalate your your thinking from threat to kids? Because like, it'll take a moment to process. Surely, it's challenging, yeah. and uh, particularly if you if you just you know assume. I remember going into oh, gone into many rooms where there's mm. been civilians. And you know, you you kind of 
once it's in the the narrative in your mind, um, it, it becomes easier, obviously, as mm. you learn. But but in those initial moments, uh, looking past kids and looking through the kids and they're screaming, it's kind of just another layer of of being you know of, of cognitive overload or or, mm. or it contributes to the cognitive overload that you experience and. Uh, mm. You know, and then there are the moments you've got. You you may have to, and it's happened. You know, all through history, uh, make decisions about shooting past, through, or or or, or beyond you know, civilians, uh, if that's the case. And um, you know, you've got to make those shots count. Make those decisions count. Mm. Awesome, Moff. Thanks for that. I love. There's so much in those. Just those brief experiences that you've shared and when there's no way we're going to be able to get through all of them but that's fine because we can just have you back on again later <laughs> but, um, but the so with regards to those aspects that i like that three block wall um there's fighting civilians and then the diplomacy i love how you've broken that up and spoken about that i guess i wanted to ask how was the how were some of the or maybe some of the most memorable interactions obviously you touched on one there in timor but with some of the other locals, just from a, maybe using cricket as an example, um, it's still from the operational setting. So you're deployed in an operational theatre, but there's that downtime. Well, I guess probably this first question, what was the catalyst to kick off the, the game of cricket um, there for you? Was it because of there was boredom? Was it because there was an opportunity to try to build that rapport? Was it a combination of those things? Yeah, when I, when I started the uh, collection, if you like, because it's mm. uh, the, the eleven bats are, are a curious collection of artifacts. Um, I actually think they that, that they're the you know this will sound a bit boastful, but um, I think they're the, the great artifact of Australians' commitment over the last twenty years. You know, with, with the first bat was two thousand and one two when we went to chase uh, UBL in the mountains. And the last one was in 2013, and it kind of captures that that period. But um, mm. yeah, look, the original bat uh, was was out of pure boredom up on the um, that was up at a Sadabad. Uh, our interpreter John uh, went across the uh, border and, and uh, bought one from a Pakistan uh, milk bar <laughs> and brought it back. So that was just pure boredom, and we played cricket, and uh, you know. The locals would join in and uh, we'd play and laugh. And I used to, we, when we were playing that, we were getting kind of, we were getting shot and, and rocketed every other night. <laughs> and so they'd creep in through the maze, up a couple of the creeks and, and lie in wait. And then after dark, they'd shoot. You know, it was pretty ineffective stuff. The rockets yeah. went straight over the compounds and whatnot. But <laughs> while in those late afternoons, I always imagined the, the bad guys are creeping up you know, coming to getting ready to attack us and they can hear in the compound, how's that? <laughs> and arguments over LBW decisions. Yeah. And, oh. and they would have been cricketed, cricket followers, I, I promise you. You know, they, they were probably highly likely to be from Pakistan. So I, 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 I wonder, I, there's a there's a kind of a, a, a comedy sketch in that, I think, you know. Yeah. And then, but, it, but it, Joe, to your point, as, as time went on and I became more deliberate about selecting a bat and making that the deployment bat yeah. um you know it, it was deliberate uh, so to, to to give a concrete example um deployed to kabul where i worked with um with with your your brothers over there the, the kiwis and uh in 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 kabul they were the they were the the, the force in town and i know they had the, the pretty busy too um for them <laughs> uh we, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, we'd get to a, a place, uh, we, we'd have a, a residence where we'd, where we'd live, 
and uh, you break out a game of cricket in the street and it wasn't long before the kids rallied around, you know, and they were, when I say it wasn't long, probably about two balls and they were they, they were joining in playing the game and they were bloody handy wrist spinners. And uh, <laughs> um, But when you think about it, uh, there's no better defence in an urban environment than befriending the street kids. They know everyone. They know everyone who's coming and going. Uh, they know, and, and when you befriend them and build rapport through cricket, uh, you can you get a chance to to touch them, like have a physical interaction with them. Uh, you uh, you you look into their eyes, smiling, which is a very powerful human uh, uh, interaction, micro interaction. And you build, and it's not long before they go and you go, who's that bloke? Who are they? They've just moved in. Have you seen this person before? And I go, no, he's he's a bad guy. We don't we don't know. You know. So there's these little little uh, nuances that take the, the the interaction built up around cricket a little further, and that happened wherever we went. Um, uh, didn't matter which country we we're in. That's awesome. I actually got to ask, Moffin. Um, you said that that sounds. It's, I can, it sounds hilarious to me, but at the same time serious, but hilarious. It's like, did you did you ever play the Kiwis? Uh, no, I don't think we did. We played, uh, oh. we, but we didn't play. They were they were busy. They, I've got really? to say, and uh, they were on the other side of town to us, and there's always mm. a bit of a peril kicking around. Um, no, we, we did play a few games against English, and there's and there was always a couple of Kiwi lads in there, either either uh, on exchange or they'd laterally transferred because that's that's uh, you know the twenty two are pretty smart. They reckon um, they they I reckon some of them waiting out the front gate for you guys and uh, <laughs> used on the shoulders, and so they should too. Because look, I'm going to blow smoke up your ass, but you've probably heard me talk about it. But I, I actually rate Kiwi uh, soft as probably the 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 best. Pound for pound, brain person, um, soft in the world, most uh, most uh, do, you know uh, capable across multiple domains, and I've always enjoyed working with them. I just hope we beat you in the twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah. There was, well, the, sort of. I was going to ask you if you if you played the boys, how many underarm bowls did you follow? Um? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not enough. Not enough. <laughs> not, not enough. <laughs> Wait, let me pull the pin first. Explodes off a good length. Yeah, <laughs> uh, mate, you're very kind and very humble as well. I, I guess what's and that's an interesting point that when you talk about that, why is that? Why is that your view? Because your experience, mate, and your longevity in, in the unit as well, which I want to come back to and talk a little bit about. But so you've seen everything, as far as I'm concerned, you've seen it all, and and it'd be hard for people to dispute that. But why? What is it, in your view, from the British, from the Americans, from Australians even, to the New Zealanders and, and the other forces that you've worked with that stands out to you? What is What, what has stuck out to you from those things to sort of help with your form your yeah, shit? Well, I guess to I'll form that opinion and, and it's from gut to you know, an explicit kind of, um, uh, you know, opinion. Um, right. Yeah. I, I really think it comes down to the first I'll kind of define what what a special operations person is, man or woman. And I say I've deliberately used woman because one of the greatest leaders and one of the greatest special operators of all time is Nancy Wake, who's a Kiwi, and uh, we borrow her, the White Mouse. I mean, anyone who, who's listening who hasn't um, looked up Nancy Wake, do yourself a favour immediately. Uh, probably, arguably, the greatest military leader from this neck of the woods. 
I, I, so special opera, special operations. You know, we're looking for people who 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 are you know jack of all trades, generalists. You know, high in resilience and physical and mental resilience. That that's a, that's a given. You know that you must be. You must come ready to a withstand the training regime which is is brutal and, and punishing enough but then the 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 environments and, and situations that you go into are very austere so you need to have some mm. level of resilience but I, I actually think in Australia and in New Zealand uh, and and more in New Zealand because they're a little under resourced because we have to make it up on the run uh, because we have to turn our hands to to many things including hitching rides on helicopters overseas or wherever we go because we don't have our own, you just, you you, you breed a type that I call bricoleurs. They're, 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 they're this, this notion of bricolage, which is, you know, yes, you can do anything with anything, anywhere, anytime, mm. and, and and have a mindset to that end. And mm. uh, and certainly people who, who are open-minded and uh, see challenges as opportunities, either opportunities for external you know, growth in, in whatever, the team, the business or whatever, but also internal growth and, and that curiosity. And I think I think Australians and Kiwis really share that. Mm-hmm. Um, the extra layer in Kiwis, I don't think, I think, I, and I'm, I know that the, the Kiwis, New Zealand's not full of all just top bloke and top chicks, you know, but but I, there's, there's a humbleness in the Kiwi psyche that I think kind of shines through above Australian, um, uh, UK, US, and and Canadian operators. I'm not saying they're bad people and you are good, but yeah, it's just yeah. a certain mm. way about the, the Kiwi approach to people in life. It really it really resonates with me, and I know that it does with everyone. No, no, yeah, that uh, that comes across. So again, blowing smoke up your ass, but that's that's from the heart. So uh, and my, you know, as I said, I think it's a reasonably qualified opinion. Wow. This actually reminds me um, of a podcast Joe, you did recently with Dion Jensen, and he talked mm. about working with the Australians and f- from a Kiwi perspective. Uh, and I think Dion was um, it was infantry, wasn't he? He was yeah. he was infantry broke. So, um, and he talked about working with the Australians, and he said, "Well, the Kiwis are the ones that will rock up their half cut, and they'll they'll get the job done. But the Australians have that mindset of." We want to win everything, and they go, "How do we?" And if they didn't win it, how do we not win it? And then you combine the two together; it's super powerful because uh, the Syrians want to win everything. The Kiwis will get things done. Combine it together, boom! It's like so. I, I guess because um, when I looked at my um, relatively immediate family history, my um, one of my uncles on my mum's side um, served with um, a whiskey company, but attached to the ANZAC Battalion, I think, in Vietnam. So, you know, working together then, I'm wondering, um, have you ever, like, cr- not, not so much cross-train, but cross-work together in, in operations? And um, do, do they just work seamlessly? Is it something that you just enjoy doing? or? Oh, always, yeah. We've done uh, combined operations yeah. with uh, Kiwis in uh, on vehicle patrols back in Afghanistan, early mm. Afghanistan. Um, they're, 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 they're normally complementary in special ops. So, mm. so you will have a, a target in an area and then the Kiwis working in another area and then the communications are such that, you know, these bad guys and communications lines and networks run through. Um, so, so, for example, the, the US are on up on the border in late Afghanistan and the Brits are down in Helmand province and we were kind of tracking the, the movements between them uh, as part of our role. So they're all complementary. Mm-hmm. We also work with them in, um, had a lot to do with them in Kabul, uh, not so much operationally or supporting them 
uh, and they were doing some mad work around Kabul. But we would see them regularly, uh, share uh, resources, uh, share information, um, occasionally, uh, allegedly, share a beer uh, or two. Uh, and, and there was a great sharing of information was probably the big one um, around, you know, what we were learning and seeing on the streets mm. And how they were deploying and, and using their, uh, you know, reacting. They were, you know, uh, reacting to what the jobs they needed, the missions they needed to do. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome, Moff. Great. Um, love, really respect and, and appreciate your insights and the, the perspective that you've shared for our audience. And not, a, not only for the audience, but for myself and Brian as well. I, I'm interested to jump back because I first met you, I don't remember the, the exact, maybe 2001, something like that, maybe 2002. Um, when you, but you had already served in the unit, and then you uh, left, and then for for however long, and then you've come back. Can you talk us through? So you you joined the unit originally. When when did you join the unit? Uh, Nineteen eighty nine, and then uh, completed uh, selection in ninety. So yeah, I joined the army in eighty six. Eighty nine went to Perth. Yep. And then uh, yeah, ninety selection. Ninety selection, and so. When, if you don't mind me asking, why did you, because you were there for a while and then you had left from my understanding, then you were back for parts of our cycle that you were doing and then you went on to the squadron while the rest of us carried on with our cycle. Why did you leave and then come back? Yeah, I, I burnt out. I really, I, so, you know, you know yourself, you're probably training for yeah, at least 18 months or two years for, for uh, to, you know, yeah. deliberate under a plan um, and uh, 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 towards an end. So I, I, I had to put on weight. I had to get stronger. I was, I was a small on the run to the family. And, uh, and and it turns out I didn't need to do any of that. I was just yeah. at a time in, in the 80s, uh, weight equals strength. Um, yeah. you know, that's <laughs> bullshit now. But, um, and, then, and then I when I, uh, I, 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 I was successful on selection, uh, and then I struggled at the, to keep up with the um, uh, the, re the reinforcement cycle, the training continuum, and that was for twelve or eighteen months. Now I didn't, yeah. I, I passed everything and made it, but yeah. I, I had I was high anxiety the whole time. I was you know that performance pressure. I know everybody suffered it, but I, it, it impacted on me quite quite negatively, I guess, because by the end of the Rio, I, I felt gassed. I felt exhausted yeah, right. anxious all the time and and I wasn't really enjoying it and then I went to the squadron and as you know it just that it's unrelenting it's, yeah. it's the hamster wheel that's going at bloody light speed and <laughs> so I re never really got a break and I and, and I think cumulatively over time I didn't know it at the time this is yeah. all looking back at it now yeah around around 94 95 that that the my mum died and uh, or she was very sick and, and, and died not long after that. Um, had my first child, Georgia, uh, and I think I think those two events in in, in unison in particular uh, just kind of I, I, I think I thought I've got to get out of this, you know. That's yeah. just, and so um, in the late nineties, I took you know, four or five years out. Went ended up in England with my wife, uh, which was fantastic. And it was funny. I got to England, and I, I took this kind of little job as a as the PTI or the the, the physical training guy oh, at, at, yeah. a, at a local constabulary for police um, police training house. And um, 
on the first day, a, a South African walked in and said, well, are you Harry Moffat? And I said, yeah. He goes, he goes oh, I've been reading your resume. You, you're not working here anymore. You're, you're working down the range. So, uh, <laughs> and, and, that was, and I felt uh, relieved. I felt um, I recouped and everything. And then in 2000, with a bit of work with the police that in kind of you know motivated me and inspired, uh, I had a few discussions with some people in the unit, and um, yeah, and they they said, "Do if you want, there's a position if you want to come back." So, awesome. um, that was when I met you, Joe. I got back around yeah. 2000, and then we picked up the end of 2001, I think. Yeah. yeah, 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 awesome, man. And it was yeah, such great times. I have such good memories of you. You sort of uh, you brought in the was it the kangaroo court stuff with yeah kangaroo to... courts and fines yeah fine. fines. Yeah. so you you brought that in and that was my first exposure to that and uh yeah man it's just you brought this real calming mature presence to a group of pretty young i know for myself i was still very young at the time a uh, group of people that were just keen and, and hungry to get in there and and work and serve and by having you there it was yeah it was just very sort of reassuring to a degree for me as a young fellow coming into there seeing you and then but also learning some of the quirks around I was like kangaroo court what the hell is that fine what am I getting fined for like what, what the and so everybody was on edge on their toes like sort of I don't want to get fined is Moff around where's Moff yeah that's yeah. right yeah. <laughs> don't want to get fined. well that's that's interesting because I, I talk about it now with teams you know novelty is such a, a great way to just you know to almost at will break the tension at any mm. moment and uh and if you you use the fine system right even in the most tense of situations <laughs> you can you can break that uh it's a good way to have courageous conversations with people about their yeah. performance in a safe environment and uh so yeah no that, that i think that's that i've always been big on morale being the most uh, important capability for any uh any unit 100 yeah that, that certainly came through for me sorry B. yeah no i was, I was just thinking about that because we were talking about nick um Nick's uh, podcast interview yesterday. Actually, uh, again, as we started before we started, um, Moff, um, he Nick did task me to remind you that he was the first podcast and you are the second. So oh, right. um, yes, so my my ROE is to keep reminding you. <laughs> right, <laughs> to, earlier, as I said to you earlier, Brian, he's a cheap first wicket. He's anyway. a cheap first <laughs> wicket. He's night watchman. That's, there you go. That's what we're waiting for. The rebuttal. <laughs> the rebuttal. There you go. Jay warned me. Yes. <laughs> But it's it's interesting because you talk about this and working with teams and the, the whole novelty thing. And one of the things that um, that I've been talking to Joe with over the, over the last couple of years or so um, is just touching on this idea of teams and particularly in the corporate space, they they throw and I'm generalising here, but they throw people together and expect people to be high performing teams, and they put them under work pressure, and it never very rarely does that and they talk about things like trust and and they use all the all the buzzwords but it never actually happens it's interesting when you talk about morales and these um novelty things so what would be some of the things that that you've experienced or you've seen that that really helps build up a morale uh, the morale in a, a really good performing team or keeps it at that level yeah, so I, the first thing I say is you don't parachute in and turn a team into a high-performing team or a close-knit team over uh, in a, in a week or, mm. or a day, and certainly not over a, a workshop. Um, so yeah, what we do with uh, a few of the corporates with now, and I'm kind of still finding this out. What 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 is the transference from so-called you know high-performing environments, and how can we take that across and uh, 
uh, to to a corporate setting um, or or even you know even a, an other service settings like uh, mm. hospitals and, and, and mm. police. But I think if you if you're coming into a team and you've got a mind to build a team uh, as a commander or whoever's in charge. Uh, you need to have a have a plan, a bit like a football club, if I can mm. use that analogy, or a cricket team. Um, you know, you've got to look at look at your manage your list, look at your lists, uh, see who you need to cut, um, see who you need, where you need to to buy in, and remember what we're talking about here is is the the privilege of being able to build a high performing team, not not mm. just an average team. That's we always talk about. Everybody can be high performance. Uh, yes, in one conversation. But the conversations I, I want to have are more around how do we build the, the best teams in that field, you know, the best in class mm. teams. Mm. So yeah, mm. list management, understanding your list, and then having a having a runway to uh, almost a premiership window, if you will. Mm. So you're not going to build. That's going to take a year or two of investment, you know. And if you've got, for example, a hedge fund and you want to build the, the best investment team on on Collins Street. You know, that, that's the kind of deliberate practice you need to have and then give them the chance to grow and resource them and get around them coaching and and uh, and support and the communication structures, you know, build that out. But it's, it's a very, very deliberate process, I think, high-performance team. That's a, it's quite a different conversation mm. to what I hear out there uh, where we're going to build trust by this, we're going to build have communications mm. by that, of course, those things are, are critical, but they come over time. And communication, humans communicating, we don't even know how we do it. We still can't work out what language is. We can't work out how we think. We've got no idea you know, how we even make our bloody finger move up and down at will. But so communication, what we do know is if you practice it, you get bloody good at it. And mm. so that, you know, building a building a deliberate approach to, to a communication model because it's it's informal, it's formal, it's emails, it's WhatsApp groups, it's a whole bunch of things. Um, being deliberate about that and being uh, disciplined enough to to practice that all the time, and that's when team when teams have, uh, understand how they communicate or have a framework, and then practice and and have the discipline to practice against that, they become excellent. And and when when they become excellent communicators they build lots of trust and mm. trust. I often, I'm in danger of dribbling a bit of shit here, but <laughs> I often talk about trust is the, the, you know, anyone who's into biology will know that, you know, the kind of cytoplasm of a cell is what provides the nutrition for all of the component parts of a, of a cell yep. to, to be healthy and, and all the rest of it. You know, I, I kind of call it the psychoplasm of a team is the trust, you know, when there's mm. high trust, there's high flourishing and, and that's, that's, that's how I think I think about it, and then when you understand the team list, the plan to get to the premiership window, and how to have good communication structures, what they look like, and how to practice them, I think then you've got great foundations. That's that that's it in a snapshot. It's it's very yeah. complex, but yeah. it's but building teams is not easy. You know, uh, NASA, who I think are about the most high performing team on the planet. Um, those the, the, the astronaut teams um, they're, they're at um, in Houston and other places. They you know they spend tens and hundreds of millions of dollars on on uh, how they select their people and then how they manage them and and how they they, they smash them together. Yeah, that's well, awesome. That is awesome because um, the space in which I work in um, is and I said this to Nick yesterday is um, um, off camera I think is is. 
working with organizations to talk about this thing called agility or agile and way of working. And it's about breaking things down into small chunks, small teams, and which encourages the, the um, teams to be more trusting and more human-like. And yet I still th- I still struggle with this this idea. You go in and you say, oh, okay, we're small teams, be a team, uh, you'll be all good. And we get, they run them through the same process, the same work, type of work. It's just done in a different way. And yet we still ex- expect them to be, oh, you're going to be high-performing in this short period of time. And and I have, I've very rarely seen it. I've very rarely struck it. So this, yeah. this is amazing. Uh, I, I think it is. Yeah, I think that the 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 the, the notion that um, you can wave a magic wand onto a team, you can't. Yeah, that's that's the old adage. Do you buy a team or do you build a team? Mm. And, and the answer is it's a bit of both, and it's understanding, and it takes time. We've been working with uh, uh, I won't mention their name here, but a hedge fund in Melbourne, and, and we've been building that over two years now. Yeah. And it is about to crack through the roof. And every, you know, at the moments when the CEO and the COO are going, oh, I don't know if we can spend money on that. That seems like a bit of fluff or a bit of waste of time. <laughs> Once the results start to come and that, that growth comes out of it, and, if, and when you walk into that team now, it feels awesome. Like it just feels mm-hmm. good to be in the team uh, where it, it hasn't in the past. Yep. Uh, it'll kick, it'll, you know, all that money we paid back in, in you know, 10x. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I don't think I think that's the message I would say I'd say to give to people is, is you know patience and time and it's pretty boring but but it works but it's it works. proven right yeah, yeah. Yep. so that that man that's awesome I love that stuff Moff and what you've just shared and you've just there's so much here I I want to ask you because I don't want to forget the externals and the music where did your <laughs> where did your drive love of music come from how did that come about and what drove you to create the world's first ever Spec Ops heavy uh, <laughs> <Maybe> metal band. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? The world's first ever. I love like, it. Yeah, we joke when we've had a few beers that we created a genre, you know, Spec Ops rock. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, oh, look, mate, I, I grew up, my, my, on both sides of my family, my father was musical. He used to sit on the edge of the bath and play um, the guitar and sing to me Johnny Cash songs and, and old, old country and western awesome. Songs. Uh, my mum, uh, on her side of the family, had a family band, like the Partridge Band, wow. and they travelled around Perth, uh, around Western Australia, and played. So it's always been there. I've always had a great passion. I'm like, I think, like everybody, music's a, a super important part for all of us. You know, mm. it's, it's a therapy, it's a tonic, uh, it's a, it's a lovely distraction, yeah. uh, and a novelty as well. You know, it's, a, it's so it's it just takes you out of the moment. Um, and music, I suppose, that, you know, the, the, the band has, we, we formed it in 1990. We're all SAS guys at that stage uh, and many of who've, who've remained and, and continue to play with the band periodically. But um, it was just an escape. It was to, to get away from, you know, the great man, Gary Kingston, who's probably you know, been one of my greatest mentors uh, and father figures in my life. Uh, used to say, you know, he used to mention kind of get away from the unit, get away from everything, get away from this. It'd be in his kind of uh, in his in his narrative, and uh, and and that was that was what the externals were for us. Yeah. One thing I love about music, and I found the same thing with surfing, uh, you can bring flow on at will. When you're mm-hmm. playing a guitar and you're playing with a band, so you've got you're accountable in the in the moment. Um, uh, you, you've you've got uh, a common um, theme and bond between you, which is the music and the beat and the and the song. Mm. Um, 
there's it, that's pure flow or what I would describe so you know just by picking up a guitar and playing a song I think it's I think and I'd love you know I'm not, I don't have the research to back this up but I think that's one of the things I really enjoy about playing music and now and now it's just a, a, a real real thrill to to be able to play and, and muck around even at our age you know we're a bit older now but um uh the the finish off the the, the team the band is probably my favorite team is it yeah you know, it's right up there so it's, a, it's about the favorite team i've ever been involved in you know we we love each other we hug whenever we see each other uh we there's, there's you know there's a couple of dozen people who've played with us over the time we all all get along famously and there's a real family thing about playing in a band that i probably haven't experienced even in, in the regiment you, you're kind of changing an in and out of teams sometimes and there's yeah, yeah. a fair bit of ego in special ops it's, it's fair to say but yeah. highly professional whereas in the band we're a bit more laid back you know it's always around <laughs> a beer and a laugh and a, yeah. do you have a beautiful man. do you have a favorite guitar uh, oh, my Epiphone by a mile. I've got a little Epiphone. Um, it's a little Black Junior, I think it's called. Uh, it's a lot of people look at it and go, oh, it's, it's not very you know, elaborate or, or um, expensive guitar, but it's super light yeah. and it just plays in any amp, anywhere. Yeah, you get a Gretsch or a, or a JP or something, you know, an SG or something. They kind of sound good with certain amps, amps and, yeah. and, and, and set up and, and there's pedals everywhere. The old Dan Electro, I could throw that in the back of a mog and, and, <laughs> and do 3,000 Ks in the back and pull it out and it'll go. And it's it still tuned. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. Like a mini mini my, what do they call them? The mini my um, five five six machine guns, you know. They, <laughs> yeah, they, it's, it's like only a small like... caliber but a high rate of sustained accurate fire. That's what <laughs> they <call> it. <laughs> there you go. It's hearty too. And awesome. I, I love those points that you've talked about, Moffin. I you've there's there's a heck of a lot. When you speak about the music obviously is a part of you, the teamwork, the the stuff that you're able to do now, I just want to ask Again, before I forget, when did you start your journey in studying in psychology? Was it while you were in, or once once you got out? Mm. Yeah, no, I, I studied. Uh, I was only talking about this yesterday. I started started studying in two thousand and five as a oh, bit wow. of a for nothing more than I, I kind of dropped out of uni to to join. I, I just wanted to be a soldier. I didn't want to yeah. go anywhere else. I just wanted to be an infantry soldier. And I kind of dropped out of uni. I didn't quite. I didn't go to uni, but I was going. I was. I was going through the process of enrolling and all the rest of it, and then and then left in March. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So it was a bit of unfinished business, and I felt around 2005 I was ready. Family was sorted pretty much, uh, and I thought I had enough um, capacity to to take it on. So that was it, and I and I studied. I, I, my first unit was I, I finished, uh, finished my first unit in Baghdad in, wow. uh, in 2005 which wow. was I think, you know, intro to psychology or whatever it was but, I, but I've always been interested in it Joe it's just something I think it's the most interesting of all of all subjects and um, uh, so that was it and I just chipped away and chipped away uh, finished my bachelor by uh, 2012 so it was about seven years uh, was fortunate enough to, to get onto an honours program and finish my honours in 2015. And then I, awesome. when I left the unit, you know, a master's in psychology is full-time face-to-face because you've got to do placement times and clinical times, all the, clinical time and all the rest of it. Right. So that's when I came to Melbourne, um, took a kind of 
semi-part-time role in a, in a um, recruitment um, unit yep. and uh, and finished it there and then and then registered so but but it wasn't I, I didn't really take it super seriously until after 20 after 2008 um, after I was we, we, we I was wounded in WIA in um, in uh, Afghanistan sent back to Australia and that's when I, right. I, I there was in danger of losing my leg and that's when I thought fuck you know I've got to do something here I can't yeah. if I lose a leg I lose a job and a livelihood who's going to you know hire a washed up gunslinger with one leg mm. so that was when I thought all right I've got to take it seriously so that's when I kind of got a bit more deliberate. Man, that's awesome! Such a and so, what happened in that? With the was it gunshot? Was it an IED? What happened with your uh, leg situation? Oh, uh, so two thousand eight, uh, we we drove over an IED. Uh, just returning back to Tarrant the car I was driving um, uh, struck the IED. Uh, Sean McCarthy was killed, sitting mm. uh, probably about a meter away from us, uh, and the uh, the interpreter lost his legs in the back. And myself and, and another guy in the front were relatively unscathed. I, we, we, got a, we broke a few bones and uh, got a bit of shrapnel and I got through the back of my legs, but it wasn't, you know, I could have stayed in country uh, for all intents and purposes, yeah. but I uh, got a bad infection, got a staph infection. And yeah, so they sent right. us home and nothing was working initially. The doctor came in one night and said, nothing seems to be working the antibiotics we might need to take him off and by that stage it had got into my guts and, and wow. uh, so uh yeah it was pretty hairy kind of, kind of period and, and stressful for the family but thankfully um you know, it all it all worked out oh that's good to hear that it worked out the, the um your so in that that moment with regards to that particular situation how long was the recovery for you moff yeah, it was a good year before I was back. Had a lot of atrophy. I remember, you know, when I first came home, I, I was in bed for a good month or so and and uh, in a dark room with a pick line in, in uh, IV line and everything. And, mm. um, yeah, going through some dark kind of thoughts. I had a lot of survivor guilt, had a lot of shame and uh, about leaving the the, the the battlefield, you know, because it was yeah. – I, I, I kind of – jokingly talk about being out first ball you know it was only like day six of the of a six-month deployment uh and, and also felt guilty because sean died and i was driving the car you know so there was there was a lot of that going on so that took you know the mental the mental recovery probably took a lot longer than the physical but i found solace in the physical um rehab yeah. uh, i found I, I i became stronger mentally and, uh, and it's, a, it's an obvious thing to say, but it's, uh, uh, you know, I, I came, I thought to myself, you know, how am I going to get my body back? Well, I'll have to do this and exercise and eat and all the rest of it. Then surely I can do that with my mind um, and, and kind of move. Because I knew deep down it wasn't my fault. So I knew deep down that yeah. um, no yeah. one would, 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 um, would be blaming you or thinking that, yeah. Going, oh, no, that's, that was a reality. But, uh, mm-hmm. so, but it, I, I remember I was in a gym in Kabul in about a year later. And uh, it might have been just before the, the first anniversary. And uh, it was the first deployment back. I'd, we'd just arrived in country and I was training in the gym and I, and I, I was doing some squats. And I remember that, that moment it kind of st- it stuck with me going, 
I feel strong again. I feel mm-hmm. you're strong, you're back, and uh, and you know, kind of gave myself a little high five internally to say yeah, well done because yeah. it was a it was a pretty horrible fucking year. I could tell you. I bet. I yeah. bet. Did you get? Did you seek counselling or anything like that, Moff? I asked because yeah. you did. Yeah, definitely, mate. That was uh, that, that, that was kind of where my mind went uh, when I I went and seen the physios and the strength and conditioning guys and, and got a physical uh, training regime. I went and saw the psychs and did the same for my for my mind. And a lot of that was talk therapy, which I I, I do it all the time now, even when I'm at my happiest. You know, it's just yeah. a good way to maintain mental brain health, mental health. Yeah. Fantastic, man. That's so good to hear. Reason I specifically asked that question is because. Um, and I don't know what it's like these days, but I'm thinking and I'm speaking more from a personal perspective and maybe what I assumed to be from from my perspective of looking at, at people in the unit, that it's not a, uh, or at least for me anyway, it wasn't, it's never been a, 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 a thought of mine to seek help, even if I'm in a real crap place, you know what I mean? It's um, I always looked at it and I don't know if it's still the same. I looked at it personally as though people are going to see me as weak and, you know, you, you need to go get counselling and that sort of stuff. And I, I've, I've been coming around and understanding how wrong I've been in that thinking and, and part of, you know, many aspects of what you're speaking about, and I'll get to the question that I want to ask you, has really helped me reflect in very positive ways around my naivety and my immaturity and my pridefulness and egotistic mindset that I had those years ago around that sort of um, those sorts of things because I didn't think that that's what men did like particularly men within the special forces unit and I was like yeah I'm not doing that and so my question to you with your studying and stuff is have you found did you find studying with your psychology help you uh, be a better soldier uh, within the unit or be a, because uh, I want to talk about relationships and stuff as well, be a better husband, be a better father? Did you find a lot of transferability in terms of the knowledge you were gaining theoretically for your psychology studies and its application into the type of environment and work you're in? Yeah, mate, a, a, an overused term, but great question. Uh, it's it, it because it definitely did. And the one thing that sticks out for me is I cut myself a lot more slack. I gave myself mm. much more permission to be, you know, as they say now, vulnerable and yeah. that, I, that, that mental health's just a thing. It's not a bad or a good thing. It's just a thing. Um, you know, and those things, when you give yourself a bit of permission and cut yourself a little bit of slack, you do the same for others as well, you know. Mm. And the, wow. the, the special ops, you're right, it's just manly, manly, manly <laughs> stuff. And, and look, it's a bloody dangerous job and, and it's a very bloody serious job and it needs to be that. But it doesn't mean that you can't still, you know, think about these other aspects of life. You can still be a, a loving father and a loving husband uh, uh, and, a, and, a, and a good friend and be a hard-ass buddy sass dude or whatever, you, however you want to put it. You can be both. They're, they're not mutually exclusive at all. And, uh, but, you know, the one thing that um, around mental health uh, being accepted and breaking down stigma, um, the analogy I, I, I like, and it's, you know, kind of nicked this or borrowed it from elsewhere, but I like it, you know, back in the, back in the 80s when I was playing footy and uh, Aussie rules, if you twanged your hammy or twinged your hammy, the coach would often say, run it out, go and run laps. <laughs> Right, and you thought that was the way to to, and it's like a stitch. You know, your guts, yeah, yeah. you're running, go and run it out. Um, and look, 
you know, for, for the most part, they're the worst things you could probably do. You know, what do you need to do? Just go and relax and do nothing, which was, you know, that's lazy, doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> well, haven't we come so far? Now we know that the posterior chain and how complex and how interrelated it is even through into your upper back, uh, right through to your ankle and your gait. And that's what a hamstring is the expression of or a twinge in your hamstring, something yeah. in all of that. Yeah. And so we train posterior chain all the way through. And you know that, I know that, my son knows that, it's common knowledge. You don't run with a hammy, you get ice on it and go and rest, you know. So at the moment, I think it's psychologically or, or, or in terms of mental health or mental fitness or brain health, I prefer uh, uh, to use brain health over all of those terms because it just has a different kind of tone to it. I think brain health, we're kind of trapped in the 80s of running it out. And mm. so if you feel uh, not trapped, I think we're at that stage, we're just coming out of that stage where, you know, if you're feeling a bit blue or a bit down or, you know, or depressed, full-blown yep. full depression, um, there's this sense that you just need to just go, go away and run laps, you know, and get over mm. it and, and it, it'll, you'll run it out. Uh, and that's not. We need to stop and put some ice on it, and and rest, and put our put our leg up, and and uh, have be deliberate about how we approach it. And you know, the psychologists are running at about half rat power at the moment. I think in ten or fifteen years' time, we'll get through this period of of coming to terms with it, which I think is evolving. Men are coming to terms with it, as you just explained, Joe. And uh, as the generations shift and change, I think we'll see a greater um, applicability and use and uptake of more directed kind of psychology uh, and, and I love I, I, I work with a couple of young men groups here they're, they're doing all the work um, and they go to schools and they go to football teams and what used to be a bit fluffy mental health education they've made really really cool you know they've oh, made awesome. it cool and uh, it's embraced by, you know, the 14 and 16-year-olds and they talk about it and it's kind of with them, it's not even a thing anymore. But for us, it was like, yeah. bullshit, you know. <laughs> <cut> <laughs> um, so I think, I think we're on a good path, you know, it's evolving and, and growing in that respect. Awesome. Do you see that um, uh, became more so prevalent in, in the regiment? Do you see that, like, the, 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 the I love how you describe it, brain health sounds a mm. lot more positive in, in the terms of it's actually probably more embracing than so mental health you know it's still got attached with that stigma the oh, just just run it off or get over it you know yeah yeah but do you see that now happening with within the regiment the um, attention being paid more so or has that already been there oh it's been there a while yeah. so there's a couple of things with special operations uh populations or you, you'll find a higher level of resilience generally anyway, and there's been some great studies into that. So we don't see the uh, uh, the expression of mental health in the same quanta, if you like. Mm. Uh, but that's not to say that people don't suffer it, so don't, don't, don't take that the wrong way. Um, I think one thing we do a lot better, well, we do, we certainly have um, uh, better engagement with psychologists and mm. people are more aware of it, uh, as in any um, environment. Um, I think we, we have a luxury also of being in the same unit for a long time, so you build strong relationships and they and they kind of everybody's got each other back in that way. But one thing we do do differently, and this is where I think the I'm really interested in it. We're really at the the, the start of the runway on uh, mental skills and cognitive skills training, 
And, and what does that mean? It, it's kind of this this concept of the of the the the, the gym for the mind, the mind gym or, or cognitive mm. fitness. Um, what 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 will happen now is when a young Harry Moffat comes to uh, to the unit, uh, they'll do uh, you know their their training and and um, um, uh, induction kind of period, and we start uh, the unit starts unpacking what cognitive skills and mental skills are. And some of those are really obvious; we all use them. It's just mm-hmm. about describing them, uh, understanding how they function, mostly at a biological level. Uh, and how that impacts your thinking and then how you build frameworks around that to make good decisions under stress and all that type of stuff. I could go on all day about that, that cognitive skills part. But the point I want to make there is that just through that, that uh, performance-based psychology, I guess, or that performance approach to psychology, you build resilience and a foundation of, around mental health. And that conversation comes from a, a, a manly place for those who need to, to still feel in charge and whatnot. And so I think it's it's a lot better that, that the preparation um, um, and maintenance of, of, of uh, how people think and feel um, that that plays into how they recover from um, how they think and feel if they if they you know, hit hard times. Mm. Yeah. Awesome, man. It's there's a lot in that, and I yeah. and, and, you, know, you could go on all day. There's whole theses uh, written on it, and but I think that uh, in the future we'll we'll be building mental muscle a lot more efficiently and a lot more effectively. Yeah. That, it, actually, oh, sorry, so, go, Brian. Yeah, actually, that makes a lot of sense because. I remember um, like a long time ago when I first – my favourite sport, believe it or not, as a Kiwi is basketball, not rugby. But oh, rugby's right up there, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's right up there. right? Um, and I first started coaching teams, and I had no idea. I thought that the way you coached it was, um, you know, you do your practice and all that sort of stuff, but then on the game day, you get everyone go, Arr! And then they all run out and, and you know, they go, and they, they maintain it. And then I quickly realized that you do that rah rah thing and it lasts for about 30 seconds until they get yeah. on the court and it's all gone. And then once once the performance begins, you know, it's, it's how do you react under that pressure of, of the performance? Because now it all changes. Because right? yeah. it's like you have a plan, but the plan has just gone custard because the other team just happens to be better or, or what have you. And yeah. It took me, actually, took me a long time to, to realize that is um, you need to practice for those situations. You need to have a plan in place because if you build a model here, then if it something happens, you you can draw on it. And yep. so I, I guess where I was going to go a little bit with that is is that part of the reasoning around the, the, the skills training, the physical skills training you do in the regiment is to build those models in your head. So if it does happen, you can do double tap on um, the, the paintball gun that Joe did with his mate as a donk. Joe, you got yeah. one of the guys. Obviously, <laughs> Nick, Nick spoke about uh, an activity on the cycle where you, they put paint rounds in our M4s and you had to line up against your mates and and, uh, and clip them. And Nick won in his group and I won in my group. But his, his, the main part of where he was going with that is he remembers me jumping in the air and clicking my heels <laughs> to get us celebrated because <laughs> I won. And so you started with all these people in your group and it dwindled down until there was the last two. And I didn't realise until after he had won his group and then I'd won my group. But he just celebrated like a more manly, cool way. I was like, yes. Yeah. Did, they, I, did, you, did you go against each other? No, they didn't. 
didn't put us against each other in the end. I reckon I would have got him, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and he remembers, he said, it looked like something out of the sound of music, me jumping in the air. So that's, that's what he was saying about. But anyway, back to your question, Brian, of what you were asking. Yeah, so, so the training then, so those sort of things that Joe's talking about and, um, and just constantly refining and training, constantly refining and training, is that to build those models? So when, like you're saying, you go into a house in Timor and it's the wrong house and then you can disengage or what have you or, or you, you think through your, your models, is, is that how you would see it or describe it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, people would be a little underwhelmed at what the basic cognitive skills and mental skills are for building, um, you know, good de- un- that underpins good decision-making. And those mm. are, you know, talk about, you know, the use of acronyms in the in the military. The two that I lent on all the time were SMEAC, uh, S-M-E-A-C, which is Situation, Mission, Execution, Admin and Command and Control or Communication, whichever one you look at it. Um, and the other one was Oodaloop. That's from the from a mm-hmm. pilot in Vietnam, from from memory, and that's observe, um, or, observe, orientate, decide, act. And they're they're very simple things. But when when you know if you you're walking through the the the, the, the valley in Afghanistan, and you know I, I personally have never been in a, in an environment where I've saw seen where the enemy shot from or saw the enemy first before they they started firing. You never see them in my experience. Um, but uh, there's, a, there's a fair bit of panic straight up. You know, your body, it doesn't matter how tough you are or how cool you are or whatever, your heart rate goes up, mm-hmm. your heart rate variability goes down, your eyes uh, focus, your attention um, becomes uh, 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 d- disparate, you know, and you, you focus on, on, on uh, the, what's in front of you rather than what's around you. And so you need to make some deliberate decisions about um, how you react to that. And so... If you're in command of, if I'm in an individual position, it's um, it's get to an observation position, orientate, where's north, just check in, where's where are the people on the ground, um, all right, decide what are we going to do, and then act. So that those things just kind of bring you back to a a a, a, a kind of a central position in your mind, mm. and try and uh, block out what's not important information-wise in the in the environment. And, and what is, um, you know, on a larger scale, the SMEAC, the, the SMEAC, is for something where you might be uh, under the pump, you need to make some quick battle decisions about an assault or about, uh, you, know, a, a major, you know, a major set piece on a battlefield. Mm-hmm. And that just gives you an opportunity to maybe even grab out a pen and paper and write something down, just gives you an immediate structure from which to, that's familiar to work to. So they're, they're very mm-hmm. obvious, but I, I think the let me use the word small e elite operators if you like they do that at a level that's uh that's above the norm and they and i think that's that's one of the big differences when you when you uh when you rehearse and practice those things all the time and and it's you know it's referred to as being brilliant at the basics or brilliant at the boring stuff that's the difference, you know. What what makes an SAS operator? I get the question all the time. What makes it? What makes a, an operator special? Uh, they do the same thing: rehearse, practice, and plan over and over and over again until they're, you know, almost punishing themselves. What makes an elite um, astronaut, or what makes an astronaut? It's inherent in the term. They're elite. Um, they are absolutely process driven. They're disciplined enough to do it enough 
times that it almost becomes second nature and they get up and do the really boring stuff really, really well. And, uh, and I think, you know, if you, one of my favorite videos online, there's, there's a number of them, but there's the astronauts are in space talking about how they keep morale and how they keep mental health and how they keep engaged because they're getting, their bodies are under enormous stress, you know, radiation, weightlessness, uh, yeah, uncertainty because it's, mm. you know, all over if they get hit by a piece of straight uh, space junk, et cetera. They meticulously plan in when to have fun, when to eat together, when to have exercise. And, you know, it all sounds obvious, but it's not many of us do it to this extent. Mm. Mm. And, they, and they build that framework in around when to introduce novelty to, to release certain, you know, neurochemicals you know, for them to buffer the, 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 the stress hormones and whatnot. And they, they have it timed uh, down to, to the nth. And, uh, and, and, and it's kind of based on each individual as well. So I think, you know, everyone's looking for the magic kind of, you know, magic fairy dust of performance. But really, when you pick it apart, it comes down to, same as we we're talking about the corporates before, it comes down to how deliberate you are and how disciplined you are about, about, um, about doing it. And mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's, that's the key. That's the difference, I think, between people who do operate at that level and, dare I say it, you know, civilians like me. Man, great points. I, I love how you, you mentioned here and in other some of the other interviews that do the boring stuff really, really well. Because uh, and it's true, people I guess have this romantic vision of uh, special forces, and but if they only knew, a lot of the time you're sitting wet, cold, hungry, observing targets, observing what's happening, reporting and gathering intelligence and feeding that back, uh, or you're hot, sweating, dehydrated, exhausted, yeah, <laughs> the opposite right. spectrum. What's the secret? What's the secret, Joe? It sucks. That's what the secret is. Yeah, yeah. 100%. So, yeah, I love, I just love the way you framed that and articulated it. It's so true. Um, Yeah, are there some times where where that heart rate instantly elevates and all that sort of stuff and the things around Oodaloop and Smeak come into play? Yeah, 100%. But, um, man, I just just really like the way that you framed that and that just sort of ties in what I haven't asked you yet, what I've always wanted to ask you is, why did you, why did Harry Moffat want to and choose to join the SAS in the first place? Uh, I, you know, I've, I grew up playing soldiers around the, the you know, I was a Navy brat. My father's in the Navy. Mum was oh. a nurse. We travelled and, and moved home a lot and, you know, played a lot of street cricket. That was a great way to introduce <laughs> yourself to the neighbourhood. But we played a lot of armies as well. And, I, and I, so uh, it sounds kind of frivolous or flippant to say but um I, I felt I was pretty good at it you know so yeah, there was yeah. a there was this kind of thing we all did it but uh, but I, it was something that was in me and I enjoyed and I thought uh, and, I, and I had wonder and curiosity around it mm. and you know in you know, I know that I know them the origin moment for me where it kind of became you know real and concrete yeah. and that was in 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 1980 uh, Princess Gate uh, it inspired a lot of people, inspired a whole generation, and I was yeah. one of them. Um, there was the images flashed across the front of the Herald Sun and 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 television, black and white telly, the little box up in the corner of the you know black <laughs> and white telly on the tea chest in our house. Um, you know, I saw those, and I had no idea what it was. 
Mm. just black clad dudes blowing things up with ropes and when you go back and look at that footage now it's a debacle they're bloody falling over over. there's guns (laughs) each other there's guy can't get the bang on and fucking falls off the door it was a but that you win ugly in those situations but um he uh but but that that really inspired me joe and that welded onto my brain and i wondered do i have what it takes you know and then A couple of other things happened along the way where that just kind of gathered, gathered so much momentum that I had the confidence because you know, it takes a bit of front just to turn up to that. You know, yeah. you to, you've got to be a bit about yourself to uh, to just even turn up for the 150 in Perth, you know. So yeah. um, so that, that was it for me. But I will say that one thing, and it kind of ties into the book, Yeah. Uh, when I, it set about for me a whole chain of reading. I've become, you know, I wouldn't say I'm voracious. I, re, I try to read an hour or so every day if I can. I'm looking but, at your bookcase behind you. <laughs> yeah, look, I'm getting, yeah, I, I, love, I love it. And I'll, we'll, we'll get more. I've got a bunch over here as well. But, but I think, and it's, that's, you know, talk about brain health. I think reading and writing are, are two ways to, to really, um, to, awesome. to pr- improve performance. But when, in 1980, when I started reading i wanted to read about special ops i wanted to read about uh militaries there was nothing there was yeah. nothing on australian sas I, I discovered nancy wake there was a very p- quite poor book i can't remember who wrote it uh i, I discovered us heaps of vietnam stories about mm. grunts in vietnam read, read heaps of those um 13th valley was probably my favorite out of all of those mm. um but there was nothing on, and there was very little on special ops per se. There was a book called The Rescuers. I wish I had kept it. It rated the top 10 special forces units in the world from Israeli, Germans, GSG, right. uh, the, the, the French. Uh, Australia was in there as well, uh, New Zealand, US, etc. So, And it talked about uh, Mogadishu and it talked about the, the Olympics and, and Princess Gate and all the rest of it. And that was it. And I read that so many times and pages were falling out. And when I when I was when I well, like I wrote the book as a memoir, not to publish. I, yeah, I, I've always right. been a journaler, and I and and I wrote uh, in in England. Went off and wrote a couple of hundred thousand words of stories and and just thoughts and all the rest of it. Um, oh, it's just it's just sitting down the bottom there, um, big pile of paper, and. And then when, when someone comes to me and said, oh, are you interested in writing a book about the cricket bats? Um, that was when the kind of book was born. But I was inspired because I thought when I came through, there was nothing to say, this is, mm. this is how you might prepare mm. or this is yeah, the mindset yeah. that you need to, to, to have or inspire those thoughts at least. Yeah. And uh, and so I thought, you know, fuck it, I'll, I'll, I'm going to write it. And I'm going to write it uh, hopefully for... Uh, an infantry, young infantry soldier who's in one RER, he's, uh, he's just joined it, he's loving it, and he's thinking, well, I wonder what it'd be like to, to, to be in the SA. And I, and I, you know, notwithstanding the publisher kind of pushing back and saying, we don't want that story, we want this story, and a little yeah. bit of that kind of stuff, uh, you know, I, th- I hope it kind of captures that. And, and I hope that, you know, if it inspires or, or helps just one Harry Moffat, you know, coming through now, I, it was completely entirely worth the the, um, the punishment that it was. To, to get out. <laughs> 100%. Man, how long did that take to, to from once the decision to, okay, we're going to do this book to getting it published? How long was that process, Moff? Uh, well, we planned... Uh, we planned 12 months and then the publisher, I think that's kind of a nice window for them to kind of get everything out on production. So yeah. 
I by that stage I'd I'd married up with a guy named Malcolm Knox and he helped me put the stories into uh, into order and then weave the the cricket bats in. All of that was already written and I just rewrote and rewrote that. I ended up writing it maybe six times, which I loved. I loved the uh, well five times that the the, the the sixth iteration was was uh, was was good. Um, so over that period of twelve months, probably. Uh, the first six months was just made up between iterations back between me and the publisher and 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 getting the book sorted. Um, but as I said, you know, I, I went in 2015, travelled to England, I, watched, I travelled and watched The Ashes, uh, took a room above the pub in, um, in a, a town called Wargrave and uh, come downstairs every morning at five and just write for three, four, five, sometimes longer, six or seven hours a day. Wow. And okay. loved it. I loved the process. I had took all my journals. I've always kept journals. Yep. And uh, and yeah, just wrote. Really enjoyed it. And you know, I've, I've definitely got enough for another one. But I don't know whether I'm up for it just yet. But uh, yeah, it was it was great. And I'm and it, it, it's not a tell all. It's just a, a bloke going about his life and um, yep. having a few beers, mm-hmm. playing a bit of cricket, and yeah, that's so fantastic, it's, man. Yeah. That's so that's brilliant. That, is that something that you would recommend uh, the, even the next generation coming through or people in there now? Because I, I love how you mentioned reading and writing is good for brain health. Mm. And, and it's also good for, you know, when, when the old brain cells might start to diminish a little bit and we're trying to recall information, um, to have those notes to refer back to because those things were recorded at the time. Is that something that you, as, as a team commander, have tried to encourage um, operators in the unit or, or people in general within the Defence Force to capture those? Hundred uh, percent, and ad nauseum. I'm probably better known in some quarters in the unit for being a pest around this type of stuff. Um, you know, set up a uh, set up an education program inside the unit, which is is going gangbusters, and uh, it's That's and awesome. the, the young fellas have taken the charge on that ex- explicitly for that because I think we yeah. we uh, squander a little bit. Guys like yourself, Joey, squander your. Uh, intellectual, academic kind of side, and I think that um, we, we could we're definitely doing that better. J- journaling is a powerful, powerful tool. Reflection on 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 what we experience in the world. It's all this is all crazy. Our perception and what's happening is just mental. You know, no one no one's got a clue what's going on other than kind of you know building a chair or something like that you know this we kind of bring form um make sense of our experience by by doing things like that so when you reflect it kind of just gives you an opportunity to 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 make sense of the world instead of just kind of being reactive and going from moment to moment and hopefully a little bit of it lessens clinging on to you as residue as you go through um but i think through journaling uh, talking to um, to, to psychologists, not even psychologists, to mentors and counsellors, just about yourself and about what's happening mm-hmm. for you. That's the fastest way to self-awareness and, and situational awareness, uh, I think, because you, you are capturing more of the, of the experience in a meaningful way rather than just, as I said, kind of just going from moment to moment to moment. And I, I've loved journaling. I, I, it's almost, you know, I, I, it's a daily thing for me. It's almost an, an AM and PM prospect 
Um, and it, it's not always kind of, you know, full stories or whatever. It might be yeah. just a bunch of notes, but um, I, I absolutely drive my wife mad with the notes and everything I leave around the house and I just want to capture. Um, but it's, it's just super powerful. And, I, yeah. I, you know, I've felt since um, taking up study and everything that a real, a real purpose beyond, you know, a club or a thing or an activity uh, it's just a, a purpose in just being a better person. A purpose for me is understand having more understanding of the world and the people around you. And I don't think there's a better a better purpose than that. And, and journaling and education plays into it. Beautiful, man. That's so cool. I love how you've talked about that. And you, you touched on something which I've got writ- actually written down as my next question that I wanted to ask you. And you spoke about your wife driving your, your wife mad sometimes with the notes and stuff that you leave lying around. Mate, with your experience and, and the amount of jobs that you've gone on, the experience that you've gained, how have how has and and the combination of your psychology study, how has that either helped or, or benefited, or has it helped or benefited in terms of your relationship being solid, being grounded, um, and or have there been any challenges that have been really difficult? Did, did your wife have to pull you up on a few things about how you've come back home or? Or things that you noticed of yourself in terms of you you were a little bit different or it took you a while to, to dial back down the volume of where you may have been at when you were away on jobs. Has, how's that been from a relationship perspective and what advice, guidance would you share and want current operators or those that have a desire like you did to want to come through and serve in that unit um, be more aware of and cognizant of, particularly in relation to that relationship space with their spouse or partner? Well, the first thing I've got to say is I feel like the luckiest bloke in the world because Danielle's a, a, a saint. We, um, it, you, you, you won't believe this or you will believe this. Uh, today's our 26th wedding anniversary and oh, wow. I've, I've been asked, yeah, and I've been asked um, what, you know, what's the highlight of your life and all this kind of stuff on podcasts and people say, give me a, you know, give me a highlight or whatever. But without doubt and, and with no second, with, with the daylight second, it's um, being able to maintain our, our marriage and stay together. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm really, really proud of that, and I, I love her dearly, of course. Um, but she, I, I'm lucky twofold because she's a uh, – well, she's probably stronger than me and uh, more resilient, and she's been able to maintain – uh, the family and the home and all of the the stuff that goes when you spirit when you're spending you know sometimes ten months of the year away at, at times. Mm. I know there was an eighteen month period I went through where we were away for fourteen months, mm. and uh, so you, you become a parent in absentia in in a way. And I think uh, so very lucky. Um, one 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 tool that Dan Dan always uses is this this notion of a reset. You know when things are a bit wobbly. Um, in our relationship or in the family or financially or whatever she we used she would have a favorite pub um, or a, a pub or a place I'll just just call it a place yep. um, where we would go and she would verbalize it she'd say all right we need a reset you know and it kind of I don't know it, 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 it disarms you a little and says yep I think you're right um, and you meet their ground. You might not resolve everything there, but it just gives you kind of this, you know, this uh, centre point, I guess, to rebalance. Mm. Um, rituals, mm. you know, if you're going away, uh, if you're going away a lot, um, 
and and returning and 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 deploying for those 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 in the military. Um, you know, I think rituals are really important. So Dan and I would have, you know, and they sound simple, but again, it's doing them and doing yeah. them and practicing them. You know, we'd have a, a set piece um, uh, uh, family activity the evening before I'd go to the same place, the same fish and chips, the same walk mm. along the beach or whatever the case, what it was, it was down in Fremantle. And we'd go there and that was our family thing. And I think that helps because it's it, it symbolises and ritualises the mm. fact that one's going and, and, and leaving. And then when on return was always lamb chops, uh, mashed <laughs> potato and broccoli. I think I, I talked oh, about it in the book. And that was a dinner around the table. But it, was, it became a thing. You know, you talk about it during... It gives you something to look forward to, which, which again, mm. sounds simple, but it's a super powerful tool, yeah. mentally uh, building resilience, having something to look forward to in the future, something that you're passionate yeah. about. Um, so those rituals and then, you know, and there's other other things as well. I had, a you know, no mates or family around for, for um, sorry, no family and mates for four and seven days, respectively, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so on. Um, yeah, and and the other there's other things that kind of the traps that you, you know one of the biggest traps is um, you know feeling as if you're hopeless and you're not contributing when you uh, when you're away you've got to mm. just stop that it's bullshit uh, cutting some you know sometimes I'd ring my kids up from overseas you have one phone call and you'd have two minutes and they didn't want to speak to you because because mm. Bugs Bunny was on telly, you know. So <laughs> the, they're the things that you, you talk to people about and prepare them, mm. and it's not a shock when it happens and it doesn't send you in a kind of mental, you know, negative yeah. spiral. So Feeling worthless and, yeah. Yeah, so there, there's lots, mate, but I'm just – I'm very lucky, Joe, uh, to, to have Danielle and uh, I you know, definitely wouldn't have been able to – kick on along the way without it. It's, uh, so it's a real part. She served with me. She should have a medal. Um, uh, I think the, the the government should strike a medal for partners. Uh, who, who, uh, yeah. in, That's in a great point. That is a great point. Man, thank you so much. Man, and congratulations, man. 26th wedding anniversary. And That's we awesome. have the privilege of having some of your time, mate. We're far out. And we're not finished yet. Sorry, still got some more questions. But... <laughs> That's all right. I've got, I've got the big surprise uh, sorted for tonight. So oh, uh, plenty, awesome. of, plenty of cookies in the cupboard there. Awesome, man. Far out. Beautiful. Sorry, Brian. Jump. Yeah, I was actually, I, I think it's just going back a little bit. I mean, well, first of all, that that is awesome. I mean, Moff, that, that, just to hear that. Um, and, and, you know, we've probably seen or heard or stories of relationships just disintegrating because of yeah. time away and, and all those things you know but I, I love how you said reset and rituals is, is just such a powerful simple but powerfully wonderful way to be able to to as you said look forward to things um but something i, I wanted to touch on was something we we started to talk about a little bit before um and it's around that that um i guess around hard wiring and your thought processes and your mindset and i'm minded of this because joe and i had a conversation this morning uh, sorry to drop you in on this, bro, but uh, we were talking about um, there's a podcast he did with, uh, again, genuine Dion Jensen, and Dion gave him a scenario, uh, and, and Joe interpreted that as a warning order, and uh, it was about hikers, so I'm sure Joe can fill in the gaps with that. So, um, And he's talking about, you, you, um, you know, you're going to that SMEAC, and you you, you, you got an OP, and it's about 500 metres from a, a group, or were potential, I think, drug people or something. Of hikers and Joe automatically saw the hikers as a threat, uh, and and when Dion 
deconstructed that because well, why? Why why did you see them as as as, a, as that? Because then he said, well, we have certain skill sets, but we're hardwired, and it's really hard to break down the hard wiring from a military perspective. So I'm just wondering, since you've uh, left the unit and left the military, do you find that you still have a lot of that hard wiring? Like you, you come across the situation and boom, automatically my response is X or I see this X or I see a, a, a scenario starting to uh, evolve on my periphery and you can almost see what's going to come. Do, do you still have that kind of thinking or that, that mindset still happening in, in, in your space? Yeah, it's, Brian, it's, it's uh, in, uh, an insightful point. The, you do, and that's part of the transition out of defence. Mm. So concrete example, high vigilance, uh, you know, so seeing um, threats, you know they're not threats, but, but, uh, but you find yourself thinking of them as threats. So if that bloke does that or if, uh, what's happening here, mm. um, even, even just getting around the street looking at traffic and cars, uh, what happens if that car spins and and there's children there? What you know, you just, there's there's kind of this 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 narrative playing in your head of of uh, a deeper level of threat awareness mm. and threat analysis, if you like, and certainly you bring your planning brain, you know, to to those types of scenarios uh, and your military experience, um, you know. It, 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 all these overlays of actions on what if what if this happens because that's that's your whole life in the military is just what actions on this is the plan but it, it'll all go wrong and these are the million ways it can go wrong so we've got a list of actions on and um, so there there is that and and it's it's known you know as high vigilance in in the kind of psychology world and uh, hyper vigilance in people who might suffer uh, mentally from it because it can mm. catch up with you. And uh, so it takes a long time to come down from that. And I, I use a term called tapering, not rather than transition. You've got to ta- allow yourself to taper out of out of service. It may take five or ten years, and uh, and you you know you've got to again apply some rational thinking to all of this. Uh, and as you catch yourself being hyper vigilant, um, mm-hmm. seeing the threat where there isn't one or uh, uh, assessing anger or frustration where there isn't, or responding inappropriately to a situation, like over-responding, being angry where you don't need to be angry, or mm. being super defensive where you don't need to be because civilians are pretty laid back and cool. Um, that, that takes a little bit of mindfulness to kind of just catch yourself and go, yeah, chill out, you know. The commentator in your head, uh, you've got to have a chat back to them occasionally mm. and say, shut the fuck up. Now, there's nothing here that's... that's uh, if for those people who suffer with hypervigilance as part of a, a, you know, a mental health issue, you, you really need to go and, um, go and see someone. Uh, if you, all you're doing is assessing threat and you're frustrated and angry a lot of the time because of that or related to that, then you need to go and have a more structured approach to how mm-hmm. you unwind that uh, and unfurl that. Awesome. Um, but that's not to say not all military kind of hard wiring uh, is, uh, you know, you want it to peter out and you want it to kind of, you know, so you can relax. But there's some good things in there as well. You know, mm. I think uh, I, um, it, you know, there's there's a lot of thinking and a lot of discipline and a lot of uh, methodologies and even language that I've worked out whilst I'm trying to civilianize. I don't want to let that go, you know, because it's it's good fun and, um, and uh, you know, it, it works. Yeah. Mm. 
Oh, beautiful. That's awesome. Thank, thank you for sharing that. 100% Moff, thank you. I wanted to ask, and sorry for jumping and skipping around a bit, we haven't gotten really into cycle or, or the, your selection. I'm really keen to know and, and have get your perspective. You did selection in 1989? 1990, yeah. 1990 did selection. Yeah. What was it? Uh, that was the hardest selection ever. Ever? That's, yeah. yeah. That's, <laughs> that was the, la- the last of the hardest or the no, last no, no, of the it was, hard it, ones or was the hardest? No, no, it was, it was in the, if it wasn't the hardest ever, it was in the top three. Yeah. <laughs> and how many, how many did you start with, <laughs> Moff? And how many of you finished? Do you, do you remember? You've probably got it written down somewhere. Oh no, I don't. I don't have it written down. So we we've estimated. Well, the, the numbers that passed in the end were twenty three. Yeah. yeah. So uh, and that was by the end of Rio, um, and and that's not including people who joined us from the previous Rio who, who gotcha. injured or whatever. So yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So the, the rough numbers, and and I think this is across time, yeah. is you know seven hundred odd, eight hundred odd people will apply. Yeah. Um, and do the you know the the, the kind of the, the, what they call it the pre-selection like um, the barrier testing stuff barrier testing that's yep. it yeah and then we the the unit will generally take 120 150 that kind of that order yeah uh, some years it's less some years it's you know more mm. um, I think this year they had 120 so and they that hasn't diminished over time yeah right. um, it's 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 remarkable actually and uh, the same numbers in in other countries as well so that the units are comparable in size across all of the the, the five eyes anyway mm. um, but uh, yeah that that's that uh, I think we had 115 or 120 starters 50 finished 30 were selected and then ultimately, um, or not selected, 30 went on to Rio and then ultimately I think we came out with 23 original. I'm pretty sure that was the numbers. Yeah, um, awesome. And uh, And I like to think that, you know, I scraped through it, whatever it was, number 23 or 24, whatever, <laughs> the other in the, in, the, in the late, just kind of scraped in. But, yeah, it's, it's tough, but it has to be, you know, yeah. it's not about tough people, although it was quite a bit about survival. What, 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 it, what the person needs to be it's not to say they're better than the, the other per, people that didn't make it and that's because yep. that's completely missing the point if that's the mindset you bring to it this mm. notion of best uh it's the most ready because you need to get mm. we don't have time to mentally build resilient mentally and physically in people for them to go on to the rio cycle which is the hardest university in australia mm-hmm. and maybe the world you know they're they're, they're um, these these reinforcement cycle training um continuums are breakneck yeah hard on the body hard on the mind hard on the family and uh and that's why your 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 rio or your carter you're so bonded you're so yeah. well with that you know that club is is the best club you're part of <laughs> in the world that's right and um because you're forged in that 18 odd months and um if you're not up for it you're you know it's a waste of time and the amount of money that goes into creating one of them you've got to make sure you've got as best shot of it as you can with the the cohort awesome and why, what I didn't ask you as well was, when you came back, what was the catalyst for you to start initiating in those conversations to come back to the unit when I had the privilege then of, of working with you on the cycle and stuff too? Uh, well, like I said, I was in the UK working, uh, working with the coppers there, yeah. doing training. Um, I'd already started discussion with uh, a mate of mine, um, uh, Matt, who's in the band with us, Matt External, he's still serving. Uh, he... Um, 
Yeah, we, we would say, said, mate, you should think about coming back. A Troop had almost left carte blanche. I don't know whether you, you were aware of that after no. um, after um, uh, uh, the first Iraq, uh, or sorry, after Timor, there was like a, a, a troop had had a troop of people who basically left and, oh, and wow. went off to chase money in the sand pit. Yeah, I'm good on it. That's that mm. was it. So they were they were down a little bit on numbers, and they were doing a. Um, there was a, a few discussions going on more broadly. So I, I'd already kind of had my gotcha. interest peaked uh, through that discussion with Matt. September 11 happened. I was training. I'd already kind of turned my mind to heading back and, and kind of starting to make that 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 uh, transition. But when September 11 happened, and then I spoke to the RSM at the time and I said, "Mate, there's a spot here if you want it." And yeah. I thought, "Fuck it, why not? We'll get into yeah. it." And uh, and it was great. You know, I, I was I remember uh, running around in the the hills of uh, outside of Kent. Uh, I love the, the one of my favourite books, if not my favourite book of all times, Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. It, it, it's the original, you know, boy's own adventure, Pippins and, and all the rest of it. I was running around with a 40 kilo pack and a concrete, a tube, you know, full of concrete <laughs> as a gun and uh, doing map to ground up in the hills around Kent. And uh, where Pip Pippins and, and and Great Expectations was uh, up at Rochester, etc. And that I, I knew then in the in the sideways rain and driving kind of cold uh, on those nights, stomping through the hills, that I was back where you know I'm happy. I'm just a knuckle dragging grunt at heart. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome, man! So great to hear. And your cycle, how how was? Did you end up losing? Yeah, you don't need to don't say who they are, but did you end up did the numbers dwindle on your cycle uh, in yeah. terms of yeah? Yeah, definitely. We had um you know, we lost we even lost one on the parachute course, the basic para. We lost a couple in um uh, uh, RTI resistance interrogation yeah. interrogation training. Um uh, and we had injuries along the way mm -hmm. and just people just can't keep up. Again, not that it doesn't make them <clears throat> bad or good or or best or not or anything like that it's just there's a lot of luck in it you know it's a bit like a footy career in a way because the it's a contact sport and um you know one broken femur or one smashed hip or you know you're only that far away from career ending or you get burnt out like i said to you i i struggled yeah. I, I i passed everything and i've performed well I, I know that on on reflection but it didn't feel like that on the inside i felt like the duck paddling like fuck underwater and it's you know, <laughs> relatively calm on top, you know. Yeah. Mm. And, um, you know, one of the things I was, I was drinking a bit through that Rio cycle too, you know, not I wasn't on the sauce every night, but I was certainly drinking more than I had before. So when I did on the weekends, we had a weekend off, you know, the, the, the like big benders. And so that, you know, I know now or as a later in life as a team commander, everybody should have a beer and relax. I think it's a great way for teams to kind of, you know, reconcile and whatnot. But there, you know, it's it's something we kind of walk past too often as yeah. men, uh, and uh, and this, you know, it's a it's a big, it's a it's a it's a strong signal, <laughs> as opposed to a weak signal in someone's performance, and we often make light of it rather than pull people aside and go, mate. Obviously, there's something going on here because we, mm. yeah. So, but I, I, as I said, mate, I, I got through to the end, and that was, I, I think, I was only just hanging on in the unit for a large part from then on in, you know, to keep up with the pace and 
Um, but but I loved it. It wasn't to say that it was a, yeah. a, a mallet. You know, was, I didn't enjoy it. But uh, by ninety five six, I was I was pretty cooked. Yeah. Yeah, man. Thanks for sharing that and being so open and raw with that because that's not a from my side. It's not an easy thing to to talk about or share. Like, but it's it's great that somebody with your experience can share that because that's a that's a way of this podcast and your experiences paying that forward to those next lot to to put their hand up and go, hey, I'm struggling here right now. Um, the unit being, by the sounds of things, being more attuned to that and looking to. Uh, I like the term that Nick used used last night, uh, providing an, an, an environment to to allow the bandwidth to expand for the operators to absorb more information to take it on and that sort of thing. So that's nice. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, good. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that, Moff. Um, that's awesome. I've got uh, another one that I want to jump in here with your. So it seems to me you're very uh, methodical. Uh, very prepared and a lot of planning and preparation and stuff into the things that you've done. And I, and I think that's obviously what sort of comes through is your mindset and process, uh, playing armies and stuff like that and, and outdoor cricket, street cricket, and then having this, being involved in that military environment with your dad and that sort of thing as well, and then finding your your way into the unit. Uh, but also it seems like, as you touched on, you were planning things in your in your mind, particularly when the event um, with regards to the IED and that sort of thing in two thousand eight, and then putting those setting those things in motion, because it's not a, uh, and I'm again I'm just speaking for myself, and I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on it, and I, and I know that you've shared this about having a plan B, it's one of the things that you've talked about in your I think it's the six lessons and stuff in leadership. Um, and one of those having a plan B and, and that's something that for me anyway coming through I didn't have any plan B it was get into the unit and then stay there till I can't do the job anymore or until something till I till I suck it or something you know in, in terms of a job so um, those things there could you speak to your mindset around what advice you would give to operators that are currently serving and or the next round of warriors that are looking to come into that unit about the importance of looking ahead, trying to plan and, and be prepared. It's not to say that you're not fully committed to to the unit and to the job and to the brothers that you're serving alongside with, but then there is a need. I've found there's there's a need because there's a gap. If you go in there just like I was, you come out lost. I was lost for a while. So would you mind speaking around that, Moff? Because it seems like you had that pretty well organised, it seems, from my perspective. Yeah, look, I've been fortunate, uh, but uh, I guess on, on upon reflection, the advice I used to give the new operators who'd come into the troop boldly, because um, I was always a bit older than everybody else, uh, which was you know it was was nice because um, it gave you a bit of kind of patriarchal authority to to some extent. But um, you know, there was a few bits of advice. One was you know, buy a bomb. A shitty car. Don't buy a you know a big Mustang or anything like that because you're not going to be around to use it. Um, <laughs> buy a house, any house. Just buy one as soon as you possibly can. As soon as the bank will lend you money, get get into a house. That was the other one. Um, invest in your partner, or invest time in in finding a good one that's right for you, um, because they are the ones that are going to hold your shit together while you're off running around. Um, and have you know, get out and join a civilian organisation. There was number four mm-hmm. immediately. It was, I don't care if it's crocheting cards or cricket or whatever it is. 
um, get out and, and have a place away from the unit. I call it kind of a third thing, if you like, away from family and, and work. Um, and the last one's have a plan B because you could it could happen this afternoon down the range. Your career could be over in a, in a second. And we drive, you know, when you, you know, Joe, when you, when you, in the old days, or, or back then, it was the same when you were there. Every day you drove past the rock and on the rocks, you know, dozens of names of people who have, who have died and the 90% of them, 90% of them, or let's say, yeah, not, not 80% of them, um, uh, in training, training. And, 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 uh, uh, so you can lose a leg, um, foot, whatever, an eye, um, in a, in what's a very high risk training environment, um, tomorrow. So what is your plan B? Mm. And you don't think about that when you're coming through the front gate for the first time, you know, you don't mm-hmm. you, you think about that. What do you mean? I'm going to live yeah. forever and I'm going to do, I'm going to play 400 <laughs> games, you know, but, but um, so that that discussion is uh, is explicit and and apparent now uh, in the awesome. in the in the initial weeks that uh, people you join the unit. Again, I, you know, I'm really proud of the Wanderers Education Program. Again, you know, I, I think it's a world first. I don't know of any other like it. It's for serving members, uh, pe- people in SAS who who are in the unit, support and operators alike, and past a certain. Tenure of service, you can apply to have your education paid for for as long as you want to hang around the unit. And I think that, that you know, some people go, oh, it's, cynically will say it's just a piece of paper that doesn't get you, you won't go on and become a doctor. It doesn't matter. What it does do is it gives you a platform to, uh, to, on which to kind of be whilst you transition or if something does go wrong and it gives you the confidence to know that there is something afterwards. And I think uh, I think that that for me is a big plan B. Others have got other other, but but it's something you need to think about and, and talk about. Mm. Beautiful, awesome. I'm wondering if um, when you talk about that plan B, is is like, is, is that also a maturity thing as well? Moff, do you see that like the, some of the say the more um, mature operators or more experienced operators are thinking about? Oh, okay. Where am I heading to next? Whereas you get the, the say more the gun ho younger ones come through and they go, it, you, go you know, show me my rifle, show me my, show me the range, show me the where am I going to get deployed? Yeah, that they're thinking like kind of like here, not out there. Did, did you find that? Did you strike that uh, kind of mentality? Yeah, definitely. So uh, back in in the first part of my career, that's probably how it was. The young bulls just came in and ran all day and you could talk to them and say, you know, I'm, you know, I remember seeing you saying to us, don't rely on your bloody field pay. You're not going to get it forever and uh, blah, blah, blah. Don't yeah. But you didn't listen. You didn't care. You just wanted to, to just wanted to do, you know, SAS stuff and get, get on with it, you know. Um, but now I'm, I'm happy to say since they've got a more deliberate approach to human performance inside the military, which, you know, is more holistic kind of look, mm. Um, the new people that come, they don't get an option. This is the way we do business. And if you don't like it and if you don't do it, then you can go elsewhere. But here in uh, SASR in Perth, these are the things we do and these are the behaviours we have and we have open discussions and we do plan and we have mentors and we talk about things like, you know, what happens if it all goes pear-shaped tomorrow. Um, We talk about financial planning and all those types of things. We're we're a little little more... uh, We're a little... 
uh, uh, we're luckier than others because we do get soldiers who have who've come with experience and maturity, generally speaking. Mm. But uh, again, just a lot more discipline, a lot more deliberate about those discussions. And I think to, to go to blister onto what Nick said, you know, that kind of that, that increasing that bandwidth, mm. um, yeah, that that training and that provision of knowledge and understanding is just a bit more life holistic than kind of operator focused, you know. So yeah. provision for families, having discussion with families, again, very obvious oh, stuff, just mm. no brainers, but just being better at doing it and um, and practicing it and, and and doing it all the time. That's awesome, man. Hey, Moff, how can how can people connect with you? What is it that you're involved in um, in terms of the business that you have? Obviously, with Stoats and all that sort of stuff. Can you take some time to just tell and share about what it is that you're doing now um, and how people can connect with you? Yeah, so uh, now I uh, we run um, a human performance consulting team. Um, it's just organisational development and team performance, team team. Um, um, yeah, team performance, and we, we also work with individuals. Work across uh, sports. You know, we're working with AFL, Olympics, etc. So it's been a real privilege. Work, work in corporates, which I really enjoy because it's an area I've had to learn a lot about, um, particularly in terms of finance and whatnot. Uh, and work a bit back into frontline services, police, military, etc. As well. So mm. it's good. We're so, I, what do we do? God knows. We're still making <laughs> it up as we go. But I, but I wouldn't have it any other way. We kind of we, we we if it's if, if it's about humans, uh, we're we're keen to give anyone a hand to to help them solve their, their problems. I think there's enough people doing process tech and all the other things that create yeah. problems and they create human problems there's not a lot of people out there just focusing on just the, the human aspect so that's that's what we do uh you can there's a website stoughton group um and uh you know i'll, I'll, I'll leave that to other people we're just um, putting um updating the website now awesome. um and and very happy uh to you know that's that that kind of i suppose uh, takes ninety percent of my life now, and um, we'll see how we go as we grow over the next few years. But things are going really well. We're we're, we're growing slowly, and um, we'll probably have to pull it up soon because I don't want to be too busy. I want to be able to go and watch cricket. And yeah, that's right, music. and spend time with your darling, with Danielle. That's right. Yeah, yeah, hundred awesome. percent. Sorry, Brian, have you got? Something no, no, no. I, I I think that's awesome. It's it's um, it's, it's just nice to hear that um, you've. And then there's probably, and you're not the only one, but there's, there's people that have got garnered these wonderful experiences and being utilised back out in, say, civilian world or in, in another context without, you go, oh, well, your time's done. Put you on the on the trash heap, so to speak. You know, it's not that. It's like, uh, I actually quite like that because then you, you, you're thinking, well, what can I do next? I've got, I've just created, I've just got all these skills. Um, I no, no longer need to hold a gun, but I've learned how to do X, Y, and Z now let me share that with you. I, I actually tip the hat. Oh. Yeah, there's still there's still a there's still a we're still on a journey to find out mm. what that transference is, Brian. But definitely, uh, yeah, there's a lot to bring across, uh, yeah. and and, uh, and I think that um, there's a lot there's there's a lot uh, for that corporates could learn um, from the processes and 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 how to develop the discipline to to you know to do the get up and do the the boring stuff. Mm. Well, every day, and some do it. Some do it really well. Others mm. really struggle. Yeah, awesome, Moff. It's been an absolute privilege and honour, mate. I um, 
we'll, we're going to be putting in the links to obviously the book and to your sites and stuff with, with the write-ups and that that we will put in place and the audio and the uh, video will go up and I'll share those links with you. Um, but I just want to mention and just sort of wrap things up here and just really acknowledge you and thank you for not only your service, brother, as a, as a leader, as a great man of integrity and, and the, the work that you've done not only whilst in the unit but your work outside uh, for the experiences and the information that you've freely and openly shared not only here on this podcast but with many other people. I know that I've taken a lot from the stuff that I've been able to have a look at and listen to but also the the really wonderful memories that I have of you um, during the short time that I was lucky enough to be with you on the cycle, the things that you taught me and, and how you put me and kept me on my toes and the, as well as the rest of us um, at that time and just the way that you know, somebody who I have the utmost respect for in terms of Nick Caldwell, um, he speaks so highly of you. And so yeah. for, for him, um, because he's somebody that I hold in such high regard, to hear him speak of, of you the way that he does uh, is just incredible. It's amazing. No, he's I'm a not ripper. surprised. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's a ripper. He's and not look, bad mate, for I, a first wicket. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah. Get him, get him out cheap and get the, get yeah. the real batsman in, you know. I think, um, mate, I, I was very fortunate, and I, they're kind words, and we're in danger of us slapping here, but butter, yeah. who cares? Uh, we don't, men, men, men don't do it enough. Mate, I, look, I'm, I'm pretty fortunate because I feel like that, that was my second Rio, you know, and uh, you, you don't get uh, too many people get a second shot. So uh, it, was, it was a privilege. And, and, and uh, hanging around all you young blokes, uh, you know, it was it kept me on my toes, I'd say. But, uh, no, it's been a pleasure, mate. It's been lovely to meet you, Brian, and hopefully nice we can meet you. Uh, share a beer in person soon enough. And <laughs> and um, uh, Joe, we'll be over to, to uh, New Zealand soon enough. I'm doing some work with some research uh, over there, so awesome. I'll, uh, I'll keep you posted in that. And, yeah, and, and you've got my number. And, mate, just again, congratulations to, to you and your wife for 26 years, mate. That's a beautiful yeah, thing. Thank um, you. So, so happy for you guys and great to see you doing well, my friend. Thank you for everything. Thanks, mate. And uh, we sign off as usual, respectfully, who dares once. If you enjoyed this conversation, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on social media. Be sure to hit that notification bell so that you can be kept up to date with more inspiring messages from amazing New Zealanders each and every week. If you found this discussion helpful, we invite you to share this link with your networks and tag Brian and I when you do. We would love to hear from you, so please be sure to leave us a review so that we can continually strive to provide the best service possible. As Abraham Lincoln said, the best way to predict your future is to create it. We thank you for your support, Aotearoa, and we're excited to partner with you in working together to create a better future. Let's go. Thank you.